I'm John Hazelwood, a landscape architect at Hassel, and this is Hassel Talks, a podcast series exploring the diverse perspectives, open-minded collaborations, and creative insights that we know will be the key to navigating the increasing complexities of our world. I'm exploring a world of dynamic planting design, diverse and beautiful planting that we engage with in our cities, planting that causes us to stop, take a breath, and connect with nature in our busy lives. And luckily, the obsession crosses into the design work that I've been working on and has introduced me to leading proponents of a growing movement, a movement with many names. It's naturalistic planting or enhanced nature, but the name doesn't really matter. It all comes with a desire to improve urban environments to a connection to nature. In this conversation, I'm particularly interested in our emotional connection to planting in our cities. How does it affect us both physically and emotionally? Hassel have been working closely with Professor Nigel Dunnett from the University of Sheffield. Nigel has been responsible for some of the UK's most spectacular planted environments, projects such as the Barbican in London and the Diamond Garden at Buckingham Palace. And with his colleague, James Hitchmo, the planting designs for the London Olympic Park back in 2012. In addition, he's recently published the book, Naturalistic Planting Design, which I've got sat right next to me, so I can, I can refer to that. Hi, Nigel. How are you? Hi. Yeah, good. Thank you. Is there a point or a particular landscape or a memory that's contributed to you taking this particular journey you've taken in planting design? Well, um, I think it's difficult to, to pinpoint one particular place. I think it's more of a feel, a feeling. Mm-hmm. And I can remember it quite, quite strongly from when I was a teenager, like an early teenager, I guess, of, of being out in places like a, a wonderful woodland with, with our spring wildflowers like bluebells or in the middle of a meadow, and I can, I can remember distinctly feeling of being part of something bigger, but, but also hugely uplifting and joyful feelings. I remember when we met, you were, you'd just come back from California, I think it was, the super blooms had, um, I mean, they are, they're, they're obviously not quiet moments, they're, that's, a, that's a spectacular, um, that's true, but um, almost hmm. event, isn't it? It's an event where, you know, whole mountain ranges change colour and you can see them from hundreds of miles away. Uh, but when you get up close, you know, it's full of detail and full of fascination. I think, I think you're, you're an actor, you know, you're, you're a participant and you're part of it. And you're not just an observer with a low energy approach. You are a high energy participant. And I think what struck me about the Superbloom and other similar things is the hundreds of thousands of people who quite clearly have the same experience, and it's not just an experience, it's a need. I think it's a fundamental need to have this, this, this joyful, uplifting, natural experience. I was wondering if I could play devil's advocate um, and suggest that all planting should be approached from an ecological perspective and not the emotional or aesthetic concern. What, what do you have to say to that? <laughs> um, um, I would say that attitude has been the biggest mistake in the urban greening um, world over the past 50 years at least, where people have been putting these sorts of attitudes, and it's still an inherent approach within naturalistic planting design and anything ecological. Um, I, I take the opposite view. I, I say we should be working with a people-first agenda, that it should be all about... Um, engaging people and creating magical experiences and memorable experiences and experiences people want to repeat um, and 
then of course you work ecologically and environmentally positively and sustainably. Speaking of emotional responses to planting, last year I had the opportunity to visit a garden uh, near Melbourne. In fact, Nigel, you you were with me. Um, it was late March. I think it was coming to the end of over three months of sky high temperatures and no rain since Christmas. Yet this garden particularly had a profound effect on me. It was full of interest, colour, texture, and importantly felt of its place and of its environment. Um, the planting was the step garden by our second guest, Michael McCoy. Michael seems to live and breathe and work gardens and plants. He's a writer, a TV presenter, and of course, a garden designer. Hi, Michael. Hey, John. Hey, Nigel. Welcome. Thank you. Well, Michael, I'm going to start with the same question I asked Nigel. Um, is there a particular personal memory or personal landscape that's, um, that's taking you on this journey? There's look, there's lots, and and there's there's some really obvious ones. Um, with some time that I spent at Great Dixter in England uh, nearly thirty years ago, but what I do remember stepping into this garden, uh, a back, uh, kind of forgotten corner of this garden somewhere in Scotland. But I just remember stepping into this sort of woodland space and kind of gasping with what with with how engaged and gripped and perfectly and magically surrounded that I was by this space. And, and I remember sort of going through my senses, trying to work out what is it that's gripping me? What is it something? There's, there was nothing of great visual or botanical interest there at all. And, and really what I put it down to was just the way there was a perfect match um, between me and the space that I was indwelling. And at that point, it absolutely... Uh, nailed for me that no matter how decorative or ornamental or wonderful my planting is, that ultimately it is about the kind of conversation between me physically and the spaces around me, which is probably always going to elude my um, my total control and can't possibly thank goodness for that. You'll be asked to design all sorts of different gardens or or even present them, whether they're formal or clipped or native or in Balinese even. The work that I'm aware of yours is that this loose term of naturalistic and dynamic um is that, again is that because of that emotional response or is it just how you've been trained is it is it is it something specific about that it is absolutely something specific about that um and i think the two things go back to, to one that you've already touched on is that the notion of the the fleeting moment that i've i've come become so addicted to the idea that uh that gardens um are uh, that one of their superpowers is to grab and kind of harvest the joy in a single moment and and that we've made the mistake with public planting in the past of thinking this needs to be as stable and as static as possible and in fact what you know Nigel and James have been looking at for for decades is planting that does exactly the opposite and that that creates a series of of unforgettable moments and I love that idea of that of the, that if if I don't go and look at this garden now, I'm going to miss something really important. And I think, to me, it's exactly the same between listening to live music and listening to it on a CD. But there's also the sense for me personally as a, as a gardener, um, as a keen home gardener, is I don't want to be fully in control. I want there to be other forces at play. I want this to be a partnership. And so for me to be doing planting that starts to respond in its own way and surprises me and delights me is a really important part of using kind of naturalism. Nigel, you kind of summed that up in a... In a um 
in one of your Instagram posts a few weeks ago, I think it was, um, you made the comment that last year you'd given it a Chelsea chop and it didn't have anywhere near of the um, the character of this year where you just let everything do its, do what it wants to do. Exactly. It, it, uh, I, I tried it, but it robbed the players of all personality and... Uh, and and you know and that's one of the, the really nice things about this as well that you know you always have the chance to to learn and to try and to change. Um, I mean, I just pick up on what um, Michael was saying there because one of my kind of um, influences, I guess, um, was a guy called Rob Leopold, who was one of the leaders of the new perennial movement in Holland, and he came to this with the viewpoint of a poet and described these things in poetic terms and. Um, one, one of the best metaphors that he ever talked to me about was thinking about these sort of plantings like a dance. That, that you know, the, the plants in, in, in the mix, they're, they're all dancing with each other uh, and they're ebbing and flowing and they're all kind of, some are going up, some are going down, in and out. And, and it's not just at one particular moment, it's from year to year to year and, and it's all about cycles. I think that that is one of the really great challenges of this is the kind of um, of this kind of planting is is getting to the place of a command of your of your grammar and your syntax in, in terms of plants and the, the and the uh, the way they they respond and the way they um, ebb and flow through the seasons in order to then start writing poetry with them. We, we have to kind of always remember why are we doing this? And of course, they're very sound ecological, environmental reasons for doing it, but the human reasons are equally important. And I think it's interesting, particularly in the last you know, few months, how so much new re realism is being put on the, the health and the well-being aspects of green. Who do you think sums that up? Best, it, you know, what what are, what 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 weapons arrows can we have in our quiver against those that would try and force it down the line of a, of ecological um, purity? Somebody I admire a lot and who I work with a lot is Sarah Price, who who brings the the sensitivity of a of a fine artist to this understanding of how natural systems work. Gardens, you know, apparently they make up twenty to forty percent of the surface area of most world cities. So it's, I mean, they're, they're just as important to a city's ecology as, as in, well, to some extent more so um, than, than some of the public planting. Um, do you think there's lessons from the world of, of the garden that could be, that should be listened to in the world of public planting? Oh, look, most certainly. I think that, um, that what the people like um, Nigel and James are demonstrating to us um, time and time again is that the best solutions, um, uh, the the elegance of the solutions that we're hunting for, is not found in a kind of simplistic world, and and that that we have, uh, in so many ways in the past, um, gone for the most bulletproof static planting um thinking that that was that was the solution um when when christopher lloyd was um here in 1992 he's the only gardener who's ever been asked to speak to the um the canberra press club and uh and he'd visited the new um the new parliament house the day before so he said to the to the national press club um Obviously, the landscape architect involved new four plants and managed to use all four of them in his design. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and the, the, the point being that 
that our solutions have been simplistic so far, whereas to get to a place of genuinely, beautifully elegant, simple solutions, that's going to be on the other side of a huge amount of knowledge and a huge amount of research. One of our um, guy called Chris Packham, who's a, a really well-known TV, TV naturalist in the UK, um, tweeted a little movie a, a month ago of, of one of my pictorial meadows in a little Scottish town on a roundabout in the middle of a traffic island, you know, in the city. And he says something like, um, you know, really gentle, you know, isn't this beautiful? Um, you know, shouldn't all cities aspire to this? Uh, people love it. It's a really productive use of the space. And and he just had this barrage of negativity saying, you know, um, this has no value to wildlife. This is just gardening. And it made me think this sense of gardening as a derogatory term, as something that kind of belittles something because you're doing something that gives pleasure or that it's for the visual as much as for anything else. It's not seen as valid. And again, it's something I've come across a lot that, you know, if, if you're making something that, that claims to be ecological, but you're doing it primarily for the visual senses, the aesthetic and for the enjoyment, then somehow it can't be working. It can't be doing its job because it's all about aesthetics. Um, and it's, it's part of a Puritan streak we have that unless it's hurting, you know, unless it causes pain, it can't really be, be achieving its end point. And if it's causing pleasure, then somehow that's, you know, pleasure and function can't go together. So, so again, this is why the mindset needs to shift. Is the root of the question really whether or not we recognise ourselves as humans as being a part of nature or set apart from nature? You know, is that fundamentally where it comes down to that we, because we assume we're somehow outside of nature, that our interactions with nature are essentially destructive and essentially invalid? Is that, is that the assumption that, that these people are applying? Well, I think it is. And, and I think the most ironic thing about all of this is that um, certainly in, in you know, the European context, most of our most diverse and beautiful and valuable semi-natural habitats, let's say, let's say meadows, are totally artificial, of course. They are they're the result of, of agricultural management and now they, they have to be maintained through nature conservation techniques. So in effect, you know, some of our most valuable um, habitats are gardened but that people wouldn't recognise that as gardening. But it, in the bigger picture, it is gardening. You're, you're, you're manipulating a natural system. I know in your book you talked about um, or you suggested that how we respond to nature in our cities is sort of innately tied to a, an evolutionary history. I suppose one of the most striking things that I, I've seen is when I've been in China exploring um, beautiful hay meadows, which are kind of remnants there and, and are fast disappearing. But... Um, I remember very distinctly being in a big valley um, in Yunnan and uh, little fragments of hay meadows in a, in a largely improved, just green agricultural landscape of pasture. And um, just seeing where the local, for want of a better term, uh, peasant farmers were going um, and groups of women with their children at lunchtimes or whatever, you know, big landscapes full of fields. But it was just amazing how how everybody congregated on a tiny patch of remnant meadow and the children were running through the flowers and and the women were sitting around the edge and everything and and these are people who clearly have not had a university education or have their own 
wonderful kind of private gardens. And, and yet, of, of all the places within this wide expanse of choice, this is the one place that they were all going to. When we make gardens and we do the sort of work we do, and we kind of unlock these feelings in people, it's an incredible thing, isn't it, to think, to think that, that through manipulation of space and the way we arrange space and plants within that space, we have the power to reach deep, deep into side people's subconsciouses and release these powerful emotions which are in there, they're instinctive. And a lot of the problems we have mentally and socially are because we, we are in an unnatural place most of the time. So, so I do think it's, um, you know, the, the gardens and plants at one sense seem such a simple thing. But when you really delve into it, it's, it's, it's a profound thing that we can do. And when you, when you um, perceive that from an architectural, as an architect, the talk about controlling people's emotional response within a building is has been long established. Um, and of course, what, what we're dealing with in that case is it, every element is perfectly in control, um, perfectly in man's control and perfectly in control of the creator of that building. And uh, whereas the moment you start talking about landscape architecture or, or gardening and, you're ta and, and all of those emotive responses, you've got to have such a loose hold on this because you know that I mean, there's such a beautiful humility associate that you must carry with it because you just know that you can't control every aspect of it. In our professional world in landscape architecture and garden design with clients, I guess, you kind of produce something which is which is static. And of course, in, in the wider sustainability argument, we then have to put so much energy, literally energy, into maintaining these natural systems in a static form when, they're, when everything they're trying to do is to break out from that. And, and it's a hugely unsustainable way of, way of working. So we need to kind of liberate natural systems to, to behave much more like they would for real with our guidance rather than trying to put them in cages, which is largely what we do uh, in, our, in our public landscapes and, and keep them under captivity. I, I have been um, really moved and challenged by reading twice in quick succession um, Isabella Tree's uh, book, Wilding, um, about the wilding of, of Nep um, and Nep Castle in Sussex. I really love in there is that understanding the disruption and um, and disturbance has proven itself to be a critical part of the maintenance of, of biomass, I mean, sorry, biodiversity. And that, um, that a, lot of, uh, a lot of florists has suffered from the, the, uh, the loss of the megafauna 40, 50,000 years ago um, that used to pull down trees and make a great big mess in certain zones. And then you would get all the um, opportunistic species flowing in, et cetera. So there's this incredibly dynamic mosaic of, of biodiversity. In Australia, we have this enormous sense of remorse. We carry this huge sense of remorse of the damage that we have caused and continue to cause, and therefore have this kind of restoration mentality um, about attempting to try and um, to, to restore things to back to the way they were and, and minimise the amount of disruption and disturbance to that. And yet it really seems like historically, and going back maybe tens of thousands of years, 
constant disturbance was an absolute critical part of it. And certainly within the whole thing of um, the burning of our, of our, the burning of the forest by um, pre-European settlement here, we have some understanding of that. But before any human set foot on Australia, there would have been this constant um, disturbance. It's never, ever a static, stable system that ecology has always been a, a, a state of war, really. <laughs> But we still have a romantic view of what's natural and what isn't natural. And that yeah. romantic view takes us back to the, the agricultural landscape of pre-industrial times. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, the, 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 the kind of um, romantic view of what nature is, beautiful wildflower meadows. And then that's pinned to particular plant communities that we have to kind of restore. Uh, when James and I did the, made the Olympic Park in London, which was Europe's largest new urban, urban park at the time, on a post-industrial site, completely contaminated, uh, in the middle of the city, surrounded by, by heavy industry, um, we had to argue that this was a site for people and not a nature restoration site for restoration ecology. And, and the ironic thing about that is that in the UK, the sale of wildflower seeds, native wildflower meadow seeds, peaked in 2013. And it's a direct response to people seeing the designed meadows in the Olympic Park. Is there a link between that and emotional response? But you've talked about, is there a direct link to measures that are of interest to our clients and the developers um, and the investors? Is, is there increased footfall? Is there increased dwell time? Um, and, you know, in, like in the case of the High Line, is there increase in property prices and rental values? I think it's a really important topic. And... Um... It's one that's a bit distasteful to start talking about money and economics in these terms, but I think this is where there is that direct connection between the emotional response and then more tangible measures. Um, and the reason it's becoming really interesting is for exactly what you said, that you know, I guess what I would like to see is this transformational infiltration of beautiful green into our cities. Um, how do we do that um, if it's not in a pres prestige project where everybody's going that same direction. There's loads of money and funding and political will and so on. But certainly people I speak to on projects, you know, that I'm either involved in or when people want to get me involved, they say, well, you can make the arguments and say how wonderful it is for flooding or urban cooling or biodiversity or for human well-being and health. But that doesn't really re mean very much to us who have to invest in a place or who have to take the risk of putting a lot of that into green. So I think one of the things that we really need to move on to is, is, is generating evidence that de-risks investment in transformational greening. And part of that is, is kind of the work that James and I do to, to develop techniques that, that make it kind of fail safe or reasonably fail safe. But I think the other part of it is to generate evidence for direct measures that have some sort of economic benefit as well as human benefit. Well, I wonder again, Michael, is there something we can learn from the world of the garden? Gardening and gardeners are the only place um, where where these discussions can um, can be drawn from uh, in the future, in, in certainly in Australia. So far, we are the, the discussion is so much in its infancy here, and so I am very aware of how completely powerless I would feel to defend. Um, its potential economic benefits. I'm just so pleased that um, 
Hassel et al have uh, made a commitment to start exploring this idea in public spaces in Australia because it's, it, it is really in its infancy. You know, one of the big projects I've been involved with is, is called rather unimaginatively the Greater Green Project in Sheffield, which is um, a, a you know, massive street greening scheme, bringing dynamic planting right into the city centre. And despite the images that, that you might have that everywhere in Sheffield is full of this sort of stuff, um, it's still still very new for us and you know our public planting and our garden planting is very traditional and i was really concerned in a way that that bringing this wild wild scape into the urban core would be seen as not appropriate so you know we've done quite a lot of people surveys as well and one of the questions i asked i've done this through students is um you know does does this type of planting fit well with the surroundings i think um, just off the top of my head, I've got the figures. Something like 88% of people said, yes, it does. I then come around to think, well, what, what then essentially, what is it about this kind of planting, this naturalistic planting that tugs on my heartstrings in a unique way? And, and for me, I, I feel like it, it is primarily a deep sense of its ephemerality, of, of, of passing moments. Um, and I also feel like there is that thing of, of a sense that nature has got a strong hand here and that, and that uh, I can only imagine that it would be a, a great sense of relief for people in cities to kind of think, oh, I can really see nature starting to have a bit of a, you know, a, bit of a playground here. I really do think you've hit on it. Um, I think all of our experiences that actually to fit best with contemporary architecture a naturalistic uh, landscape works, partly because it heightens the boldness of the architecture and the architecture strengthens the, natural, strengthens the naturalism. But also people absolutely love to be in this natural feeling space in a contemporary context. Nigel, Michael, it sounds like a good place to stop. Thanks so much for joining us. I mean, you've both... You've both had a great influence on me over the past few years, whether it's in my public work or whether it's in my private garden, Michael. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been great. Thank, thank you, you so much. I'm John Hazelwood. You've been listening to an episode of Hassle Talks. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to hear more, please subscribe and check out our other episodes. And thank you for listening. <laughs>